Hello and welcome to the Trump Scorecard. I'm your host, Jesse Burney, and once again, we have a week where there is way too much to talk about. How do you decide where to start? What is the biggest story this week? The latest developments in the Russia investigation, the latest leaks of intelligence, the continued destruction of Obamacare, Trump's disastrous first foreign trip, the ongoing violations of Trump's own ethics rules. They're all important, and I'm going to cover all of them. But I want to start with the budget, because the budget Trump released this week is a fundamental statement of his values. He has no values. You may not think of a thick book full of numbers and tables as being cruel, but this budget is a Disney villain. When you open it up, it cackles at you. There's no way I can cover all the horrific things in this budget. It's a half-hour podcast. I have other things to cover, and it would take hours. But I want to highlight a few of the very real ways Trump's budget would genuinely hurt real Americans if it were passed as it is. And to be clear, it won't be. Congress will write its own budget, and, and with Republicans in charge, there probably will be cuts, but not as drastic as these. But like I said, this is a statement of who Trump is, and it says he is a very, very bad man. So here are just a few of the cuts in Trump's 2018 budget. Uh, if you're a politics nerd like me, you, you may have heard of the term lie heap, uh, or if you're a low-income person who lives in a northern state, it's the Low Income Home Energy Assistance Program. It helps people afford fuel to heat their homes in the winter, so they don't freeze to death. Trump's budget doesn't cut lie heap. It eliminates it, zeroes it out, goodbye forever. People's lives depend on that program, and if Trump gets his way, it's gone. The Legal Services Corporation provides low-income Americans with legal services. It helps victims of domestic violence, people whose homes are being foreclosed on, uh, consumers who have been shafted by predatory payday lenders, even military families. Trump's budget doesn't cut the Legal Services Corporation. It's gone. The Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program, it says, hey, if you devote part of your career after college to public service, maybe by being a social worker or a nurse in a public hospital, we'll forgive some or all of your loans. And that program, it doesn't just help those students, right? It helps the people they help by encouraging people to go into public service. Trump's budget doesn't cut the public service loan forgiveness program. It eliminates it. The National Endowment for the Arts, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, all gone. Not a single federal dollar would go to pay for health care at Planned Parenthood, health care of any kind. If you're on Medicaid, you could never visit a Planned Parenthood again. The Chemical Safety and Hazard Investigation Board, that sounds important, it's zeroed out. The National Cancer Institute would face a $1 billion budget cut. $1 billion to fight cancer. Gone. Again, this is just a fraction of the brutality in this budget. If it's good, if it helps people, chances are we're going to spend less money on it or no money at all. And just as important, this budget is based on a fundamental lie. The numbers, they don't add up. It claims $2 trillion in revenue from Trump's tax cuts, which we don't know the details of yet. And not only does that $2 trillion not exist, it's the standard GOP claim that tax cuts somehow produce more tax revenue, which we learned during the Bush administration just is not true. But it counts that fantasy $2 trillion twice. 
first to make up for the revenue lost by the tax cuts themselves, and then as additional money to pay for the Trump budget. That money doesn't exist, but they counted it twice. Even conservative Representative Mark Sanford of South Carolina took a break from hiking the Appalachian Trail to call this budget a lie. But the biggest lie of all may be the budget's title, A New Foundation for American Greatness. This budget would not make America great again. If these cuts ever became a reality, they would make America uglier, less equal, more divided, more cruel. It would remake America in the image of Donald Trump. Speaking of the budget, uh, I want to talk about something on the revenue side, uh, namely the revenue of the Trump scorecard. There isn't any. Uh, I don't have advertisers. I'm not a member of a podcast network. And uh, I promise I'm not going to do this much. And And I just want to say it really briefly. I put a lot of love and a lot of work and a lot of time into this podcast. Um, because I do it myself, and because uh, it's not a conversation with somebody except my interviews, um, it takes a lot of scripting, uh, a lot of writing. I have to book the interviews and conduct them. Uh, I have to record everything. I edit it all myself. I put up the website myself. Everything, it's a one-man show, and it's hours and hours every week. And I do it because I love it, and because I think it's important, and because I hope that you find it useful. And if you do, if you think it's interesting, uh, if you find it insightful, entertaining, cathartic, uh, if it enrages you, but in kind of a good way, it would mean a lot if you could help support the podcast. Uh, I set up a a Patreon where you can support it. Uh, You can just give a few bucks uh, for each episode. Uh, What you do is you just go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N slash the Trump scorecard. It's the Trump scorecard. And uh, just pledge a, a few bucks per episode. Uh, there's some rewards that you can you can find when you go to the site. And it would just mean a, a huge amount to me to, to have some support from my listeners. So I really appreciate it. It's patreon.com slash the Trump scorecard. Thanks. It goes without saying this was another huge week in the investigation into Trump's ties with Russia. This story has so many facets, and they're all constantly developing. It it makes it very hard not only to keep up, but to maintain a grip on the core of what this story is all about. And to be fair, even that core can shift. I think this used to be primarily a story about possible collusion with a foreign adversary to fix an American election. But as so often happens with these sorts of scandals from Watergate on down, it has become a story about cover-up and obstruction. And wow, did we see more news to that end this week. First, we confirmed that once again, Trump fired FBI Director James Comey because of the Russian investigation. You remember last week, we talked about that conversation he had with the Russian ambassador and foreign minister, where he revealed classified information about operations against ISIS? Turns out, in that same conversation, he told the Russians firing Comey had relieved him of a, quote, great pressure. He also called Comey crazy, a real nut job. There's that classic Donald Trump projection we learned to know and love on the campaign trail. He also said, I'm not under investigation, which we know is not true. Add up those quotes and throw in the Russians they were delivered to, and it's pretty obvious why Comey is no longer director of the FBI. And now, of course, another former FBI director is running the investigation, special counsel Robert Mueller. 
And I wonder how the White House feels about Mueller investigating them. Hang on, getting some breaking news. Bad. They feel bad about Mueller investigating them. So bad, in fact, that they are actively trying to use ethics rules to undermine his investigation. And we're going to talk a lot more about this administration and ethics later in the podcast. But, but this is especially hilarious. They're trying to cast doubt on Mueller's independence by pointing out the law firm he used to work for has represented Jared Kushner and Paul Manafort. Mueller didn't work for them personally, but if it were a conflict, wouldn't it be a conflict in the White House's favor? So they're trying to undermine Mueller by saying, what, he might be too kind to them? And anyway, Mueller's reputation as an independent, nonpartisan, thorough investigator, it's too solid for this to make any dents. What's fascinating to me about this is how absolutely terrible the Trump White House is at communication strategy. Why on earth would you attack a special counsel like Mueller before he has even started his investigation, especially right after you fired the last guy who was investigating you? You might as well hire a skywriter to fly over the White House and write, we have something to hide in giant smoke letters. Remember, these are the guys who sent out Sean Spicer on the very first day to yell obvious lies about the inauguration crowd size to reporters. Their instincts are so laughably bad. And the thing about cover-ups is they always make things worse. Always. Just as an example, the investigation is now looking into whether the administration engaged in a cover-up. That's according to members of Congress who were briefed by uh, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. He's the man who appointed Mueller special counsel. So by obstructing the investigation, they've just opened an entire new avenue of stuff to investigate. For example, uh, Mueller might start investigating how, when, and why President Trump asked both the Director of National Intelligence and the head of the National Security Agency to publicly claim there was no evidence of his campaign colluding with Russia. Of course, both men said no to the president because it is a ludicrous and incredibly unethical request to make, and once again makes the White House look guilty as hell. But, but look, that's just appearances, and there's a lot more than appearances, of course. Every week there are new revelations that sink this White House deeper and deeper into the scandal. And this week was no exception. For example, uh, the Washington Post reported, and I have a link to that story and all the stories covered here in the entire podcast on the website. That's thetrumpscorecard.org. The Washington Post reported the investigation has identified a senior official still working in the White House as a significant person of interest in the investigation. Uh, speculation has swirled around Jared Kushner, but we don't deal with speculation on the Trump scorecard, unless it's really entertaining, like speculating about Jared Kushner trying to look super suave in an orange jumpsuit. But the news focused on former Trump advisors this week as well. Intelligence reports said Russians discussed the influence they had gained over former campaign chairman Paul Manafort and the short-lived national security advisor Michael Flynn, and how they could use that influence to get Trump to do what they want. There were even reports of conversations of Russians bragging about their hold over Flynn. You'll remember Flynn was paid thousands of dollars to speak at the celebration of Russian propaganda channel RT. He sat next to Vladimir Putin at that celebration. Remember, Russians, they don't walk up to you and say, hey, come be a spy for us. They develop a relationship. They ask for favors. They gain leverage. Russians had deep financial ties to Manafort and, and some ties to Flynn as well. Where else did they have financial ties? Right, right, 
We don't do speculation. I'll just add that in addition to lying in his sworn confirmation hearings about his meetings with the Russian ambassador, Attorney General Jeff Sessions also lied on his security clearance application about the same contacts, both of which should be reason for him to be fired or resign. But he's not going to resign because, as we have covered many times on this podcast, Jeffrey Beauregard Sessions III is terrible. But look at how much time I've spent just glossing over a single week's developments in this story, and I guarantee I'll be back next week with more. Normally, you expect a story like this to sound like drip, drip, drip. Instead, we're getting a gushing waterfall week after week. I say it every episode. This is not normal. We cannot let this start to feel normal. It is an extraordinary story. Every revelation is deeply disturbing. But what's most disturbing is how little confidence I have that this president will ever be held accountable for any of this, even if all the truth, all of it, ever does come to light. Guys, President Trump took his first big boy foreign trip this week. Pretty exciting. But of course, there were some mistakes. And I want to talk about two moments in particular that really demonstrate how out of depth this president is. So, like I mentioned earlier, last week we learned that Trump revealed some classified intelligence to the Russians. And reports said the intelligence came from an Israeli asset embedded in ISIS. And Israel was supposedly furious about this leak. So when Trump met this week with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, he tried to patch things up by saying this to the press during a photo op they were sharing. Just so you understand, I never mentioned the word or the name Israel. Never mentioned it during that conversation. They were all saying I did. So you had another story wrong. Never mentioned the word Israel. Which is almost the worst thing he could have said. By, by saying, I didn't say the word Israel, he's essentially confirming that's where the intelligence was from. He's basically leaking about his own leak. And what he said about getting the story wrong, it doesn't even make sense. No story claimed he said in that meeting the intelligence was from Israel, just that the intelligence he leaked was from Israel, and that Russians could probably have figured that out. And I'll put the video of this exchange up on the website because you absolutely have to see Netanyahu's face when Trump says this. It was an enormous, unforced error. And then on Thursday, Trump went to his first NATO meeting and, and gave a speech at the dedication of a September 11th memorial. And in his speech, he failed to do something virtually every president in a similar position has done before him, reiterate America's commitment to Article 5. What's that? It's the part of the NATO treaty that says if any member nation is attacked, all others must come to its aid. It's the glue that holds NATO together. And it is a critical signal presidents must send to express strong support for Article 5. Trump did mention Article 5 in his speech, and afterwards, Sean Spicer, his press secretary, said it was ridiculous to hold him to a standard of being more explicit. But this is where his team's inexperience has serious consequences, because it's not ridiculous. Foreign policy is mostly about subtle messages and signals. And Trump's failure to endorse Article 5 explicitly, it's like hiring that same skywriter to fly over the Kremlin and write, the U.S. is feeling kind of wishy-washy about NATO these days. That's why this matters so much. We have an aggressive Russia interfering in elections not just here, but in Europe. 
And there have been serious signals Putin is thinking about expanding into the Baltics, including Estonia, a NATO member. If he thinks the U.S. won't come to Estonia's defense, which we are required to do according to Article 5, he's more likely to take aggressive action, just like he has in the Ukraine. What Trump said, or rather didn't say, had serious consequences. Uh, An international relations expert friend of mine called it unconscionable. Eli Stokels, a a reporter for the Wall Street Journal, said a Republican national security official texted him to say he had to apologize to a European defense attache saying, I'm sorry, he's an idiot. And that guy's right. Trump is an idiot. This was a basic mistake, the kind you make when you hire a secretary of state with no diplomatic experience and then fail to hire the rest of his senior staff. Or maybe it's worse. Maybe this was a signal sent on purpose. This is the guy who said during the campaign that NATO was obsolete. And he's gone back on that, but that's exactly the kind of mixed signals that make our allies extremely nervous. Either way, Trump spent this first foreign trip alienating our allies. I can't wait for him to come back and crow about what a success it was. Speaking of foreign policy disasters, Trump had a phone call last month with Filipino President Rodrigo Duterte that raised some hackles at the time, especially his invitation to Duterte to come to the White House. Duterte has been running a violent, despotic war on drug dealers and users in this country. He's had countless people murdered with no due process, no trial, literally shot down in the street. So inviting someone like that to the White House is an incredibly inappropriate move. But we didn't know the exact content of that call until this week. The Intercept got their hands on the transcript, and Trump did in fact tell Duterte to come to the Oval Office whenever he wants, which is horrible. But it gets worse. Trump specifically praised Duterte's extrajudicial murder spree. He said, I just want to congratulate you, because I am hearing of the unbelievable job on the drug problem. It's not an unbelievable job. It's the murder of his own citizens. And now that's been endorsed by the President of the United States. But that's not all. Because why would our President give up the chance to once again leak incredibly sensitive national security information to a foreign leader? He and Duterte were discussing North Korea, and Trump mentioned that we have two nuclear submarines, quote, over there. The location of our subs that can fire nukes is one of our most closely held secrets and he shared it like it was a brownie recipe. The President of the United States cannot be trusted with our nation's secrets, and this isn't because he's secretly a foreign agent. It's because he's a jackass who likes to show off. There were two big stories this week on Trump's fight to overturn the Affordable Care Act. First, the Congressional Budget Score came out on the American Health Care Act. That's the bill Republicans in the House passed before the CBO score came out, so they could say they didn't know how bad it is. It's bad. 23 million people lose their insurance if this bill becomes law. 23 million. And everyone with a pre-existing condition will be in danger of losing their ability to find and buy insurance they can afford. One of the Freedom Caucus Republicans who was responsible for the deal to pass the bill, Mark Meadows, teared up when he realized people with pre-existing conditions might not be covered. And honestly, fuck you, Mark Meadows. Of course that was the case. Everyone said it was the case, and it's your fault it's the case. The problem isn't that you didn't jigger the numbers just right. The problem is that your values are completely out of whack. 
The math will never add up on a GOP healthcare bill because Republicans don't believe in providing healthcare to people. You don't get to cry now. If you don't like it, abandon your shitty values and work to make healthcare in this country better, not worse. Speaking of making healthcare in this country worse, Trump this week told advisors he wants to stop federal payment of subsidies to insurance companies required by Obamacare. And what this would do is immediately send the system into a tailspin, which is what Trump, of course, has been predicting. Turns out he is the power to flip the switch himself. He believes it would give him political leverage over the Democrats in the healthcare fight. And if that costs a few million people their insurance, so be it. Americans will die. But why should that stand in the way of the president getting to declare a political victory? Drain the swamp, drain the swamp, drain the swamp, drain the swamp. He said he drained the swamp over and over again during the campaign. But instead, we got this. Well, you have um, uh, this guy, his name is Mike Cantanzaro. He is working now at the National Economic Council um, on energy and environment issues. Um, and previously, he was a lobbyist for the oil and coal companies that um, opposed Obama's clean power regulations, right? And so now he is working on the Economic Council in the White House uh, that is trying to dismantle those those regulations. Um, you know, there's a, at the EPA, um, the person uh, that was put in charge of regulating the chemical industry was the vice president of the Chemical Industry Trade Association. Um, you have uh, people who lobbied for, um, uh, uh, again, lobbied for big banks are now working uh, on banking issues. Um, people who uh, lobbied against uh, labor rules rules at the Department of Labor on wages um, is now uh, in charge of the Labor Department section on things like wages. So you, you have these people um, that are just, they're, they're just paid by these corporate interests uh, to lobby these issues, and now they're just doing that uh, in the administration. That's Adam Smith. He's the communications director for Every Voice. It's an organization that focuses on money in politics and ethics in government. And all these lobbyists working on their own issues for the administration don't just violate Trump's vague campaign promises. They violate administration policies he set. Donald Trump made some clear statements that he would make sure lobbyists did not have a big role in his administration. And now that he's in office, the opposite is true. And they have a huge role in the administration. And this is bigger than Trump just being a hypocrite, which I, I think we can point it out. Trump is a hypocrite about lobbyists. But what it's really about is uh, Trump handing his administration um, over corporations. It's this corporate takeover, this corporate capture of the government that he is allowing and allowing these, these paid actors to support policies that will benefit their old bosses uh, but could pollute our air and hurt the rights of workers. So who can hold Trump accountable for violating his own policy? Legally, probably no one, but at least someone is trying. You may remember during the transition, Walter Schaub, the head of the Office of Government Ethics, sent a letter to Trump urging him to divest himself of his businesses because of the obvious and huge potential for conflict. Adam explained a little more about what the Office of Government Ethics is and how it works. 
the Office of Government Ethics isn't really an enforcement agency, it's an advisory agency, and it works because for decades, uh, it is, the, the administrations have had the goodwill to work with administration, uh, work with the office to, to get rid of its conflicts and deal with any ethics violations. Um, uh, but this administration has no interest in that. They have, uh, when there have been violations of ethics, for example, when Kellyanne Conway sat in the White House and told people to buy Ivanka's clothing, that was a violation of ethics rules. The Office of Government Ethics said, you need to punish her. And the White House said, now nah, we're not going to do it. And here's how OGE usually works with the White House. So what usually happens is, uh, so like at the White House, the um, President Trump should have gone to the Office of Government Ethics and said, here are all the um, uh, here are all the things that might conflict, businesses that I own that might conflict, and here's how I'm going to best from them. And the Office of Government Ethics would say, cool, here's the plan to do this. They would put a letter together, they would all agree, then they would post this public letter, here's how Donald Trump is going to divest from his prop- companies to make sure he doesn't have a conflict of interest. Donald Trump didn't do that, and the OG had to come out and say, this is actually not a conflicts plan. So Trump himself is obviously a giant walking conflict of interest. But he's gone further than that. Trump claimed he was going to ban lobbyists and then hired more than ever before. I'll let Adam explain. Donald Trump issued this ethics executive order early in his administration that said, here's how we're going to reduce the power of lobbyists in my administration. And like President Obama's ethics executive order, what it did was it banned lobbyists from working, prohibited lobbyists from working as appointees on issues that involve their past clients, um, and or former lobbyists couldn't work on the same regulatory issues. Um, there, like Obama's, there are ability to offer waivers, uh, uh, so that you know in the Obama administration, the waivers were their waivers were granted, but on a very limited basis and for very particular reasons. If someone had a very particular skill set or if they uh, worked on an issue for maybe a month and then they decided to work in administration. Very limited, and those waivers were granted um, in consultation with White House counsel and career ethics officers. The Trump administration also has waivers, but there are very few rules on them, and they're basically saying if the president says there should be a waiver, if the White House counsel says there should be a waiver, we're just going to do it. We don't care uh, whether what the rule, what the deal is. And so throughout this administration, they've been hiring all these lobbyists, and it appears that they're granting all these waivers, uh, but we don't know about it. So Schaub sent a letter to individual agencies' ethics officers saying, hey, we want to see these waivers. They were public in the Obama administration, posted right on the White House website, and Schaub wanted Trump's to be public too. So he asked for them so he could post them on the Office of Government Ethics website. What was the White House's response? The White House and OMB uh, pushed back and said, no, you can't do that. You have no right to do that. Ignore the Office of Government Ethics. We want to keep hidden all of the lobbyists in the working administration. We don't want the American people to know um, the about the corporate power that we're giving over in this administration. Adam pointed out, this isn't an isolated incident. For me, this actually, this story about lobbyists and fighting release of the waivers, uh, it's a bigger story about this, like, uh, this 
uh, beliefs out of this administration that they are not accountable to anybody, that they should not be accountable or transparent. You know, I think it ties into things like how the White House won't release its visitor logs, something the Obama administration did. They don't want people to know the, you know, the, the CEOs, the lobbyists, other people that are meeting in the White House. The, the Trump won't release his tax returns like everybody else has. That his, Donald Trump is you know, going to release his financial disclosure form uh, soon. That his lawyer didn't want him to actually sign it when, she, when, when he turned it in. I think there's this bigger symptom of the administration thinks it's above accountability. think it should be able to you know, run, uh, run the government without being held to any sort of standard and that they should be able to get away with that. And I think something like this should be seen as part of that larger picture. And just like how the White House going after Mueller is a really stupid communication strategy, so is this. For some reason, the White House really doesn't want people to know who's working in the administration and who these lobbyists are. And it's really something, um, because honestly, I think if they just released them, it would be, it'd be a, with so much going on, it would be a smaller story. But now because they're fighting it, it becomes this bigger story. So when they are finally released, it's going to be, everybody's going to be paying a lot more attention to it. So not only is President Trump violating his own ethics rules and filling our government with corporate lobbyists, he's also doing it in a way to make himself look as shady as he possibly can. This is our president, folks. I want to end this week by talking again about Trump's big boy foreign trip. These trips are all about appearances. That's the whole point, to send a signal of strength, of competence, of friendship with our allies. And by that measure, this trip may be one of the most miserable failures in the history of U.S. foreign policy. Every day there was some photo, some video clip that was silly or embarrassing or downright hilarious. I want to go through the highlights. First, of course, there was the orb. Trump's hands, along with the leaders of Egypt and Saudi Arabia, touching a glowing orb to mark the opening of a counterterrorism center. Was it a secret Illuminati signal? An object of great magical power? A, a multi-user tanning light? Whatever it was, it was goddamn ridiculous. Then, there was the hand slap. Walking down the red carpet in Israel, Trump sees Netanyahu and his wife holding hands. He reaches for Melania's hand. He reaches. He reaches. And she slaps it the fuck away. That was my favorite. Uh, then Trump visited Yad Vashem, the Israeli Holocaust Museum, and signs the guest book. This was his message. It is a great honor to be here with all of my friends. So amazing. Plus, we'll never forget. That was the whole thing. You have to compare it with Obama's substantive, eloquent message that he left at the same site. Uh, you can find the link on the website. Then Trump went to visit Pope Francis, who threw the hardest Pope shade since the schism. Not only did the Pope take photos where he looked like Bill Clinton sitting next to Kim Jong-il when he went to North Korea to free some prisoners, but he gave Trump as a present an encyclical he wrote about the importance of fighting climate change. Damn. I hope it has a lot of charts, because my man is not much of a reader. Uh, then it was off to NATO, where Trump literally shoved the Prime Minister of Montenegro out of his way so that he could be at the front of a photo op. You have to see the expression on Trump's face when he does this. Just a total jackass. 
Uh, if you missed any of this stuff, I'll have links to all of it on the website, thetrumpscorecard.org. That's it for another week with uh, as our president. I want to thank Adam Smith for coming on to talk about the least ethical person ever to be in the White House. And again, I would really appreciate if you could support the podcast. It would mean a lot. Uh, so go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash the Trump scorecard. And of course, I'll have a link on the website along with links to all the stories I talked about in today's episode. It's the Trump scorecard. You can also like the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash the Trump scorecard and hit me up on Twitter at Jesse Bernie. And if you want to send me an email to tell me how much you love me, you can do so at the Trump scorecard at gmail.com. I am going to, you know, fight the power of lobbyists and big donors. The Trump scorecard is written, hosted, edited, and produced by me, Jesse Bernie. Our music is from bensound.com. I'll be back next week. And remember, this is not normal. Ooh.